and it's a very tragic situation, terrible. And uh, you know, when you're dealing with systems like this, you can uh, plan for some things, and then when you get outside the envelope, uh, uh, you're in trouble. to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of our Environmental Economics Program and Project on Climate Agreements. In mid-February of this year, a series of severe winter storms swept across the United States, apparently due to the jet stream dipping particularly far south, stretching from Washington state down to Texas and running back north along the east coast, allowing a polar vortex to bring exceptionally cold air across the country and spawning multiple storms along the jet stream track. This weather phenomenon resulted in record low temperatures throughout the state of Texas, with temperatures in Dallas, Austin and San Antonio falling below temperatures in Anchorage, Alaska. In Texas, this led both to dramatic increases in electricity demand for heating and at the same time, drastic reductions in electricity supply as natural gas, nuclear and wind generating facilities faced a variety of serious impairments. This severe supply demand imbalance on the Texas electricity grid resulted in what has already come to be called by the press, the Texas energy crisis of 2021, which according to my guest today was of scale, scope and duration that were quote unquote unprecedented. We're delighted to have with us William Hogan, the Raymond Planck Research Professor of Global Energy Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School where he is the research director of the Harvard Electricity Policy Group. Bill, welcome to Environmental Insights. Uh, so thank you for the invitation. So I'm very interested, of course, to hear your assessment of the causes and for that matter, the consequences of the Texas electricity crisis. But before we get into that, our listeners are always interested to learn about how you came to be where you are and where you've been. So where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in uh, largely in Westfield, New Jersey, and then I uh, went to, I was an undergraduate at the Air Force Academy, and I served in the Air Force uh, for a number of years, uh, worked in the Pentagon, uh, and then later was back in Washington, uh, working in the Federal Energy Office. Uh, Tell me about your decision, though, to go to the Air Force Academy. What was the origin of that and the nature of the decision? Well, um, back in the day, um, at least in my world, uh, everybody thought they were going in the military. And so uh, uh, that was just taken as a given. And uh, the Air Force Academy uh, was one of the few places where the fact that I could play basketball would help me get in, but I wouldn't have to become a professional basketball player. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> Now, after the Air Force Academy, which I should say that my own connection with the Air Force Academy is also linked with you in another way, and that is that I have had the pleasure of succeeding you 
at Harvard is uh, in chairing our PhD program in public policy. And on a regular basis, we have found that among our very best applicants and then graduates are people who went to the Air Force or one of the other military academies as undergraduates. I, I did that. You may have also found that when you were chairing the program. Yes, it's a, it's a very demanding program, and it, it does produce very good students for us. Now, so when you graduated from the Air Force Academy, you eventually went to UCLA. Was that both for an MBA and a PhD degree? Uh, it, yes, it was. Uh, it, it's a little bit complicated story, but there was an accelerated program where uh, you could start an MBA while you were still at the Air Force Academy, mm-hmm. and and then spend basically one uh, the equivalent of one academic year at UCLA and get an MBA. And I did that, and then I went to work in the Pentagon. And you wound up working on energy policy in the U.S. government before there was a Department of Energy, right? Uh, yes, I uh, it uh, for I was in the Air Force for a while and then taught at the Air Force Academy, and then I left there and and I joined a small office in the Department of Interior uh, called <laughs> the Office of Energy Data and Analysis. And it was September of 1973, um, about three weeks three weeks before the Yom Kippur War and the Arab oil embargo. Mm-hmm. And I went from being the second person to joining the office to leading a task force of about 500 people. Is it also correct then that from there you eventually went to Stanford? where you actually, I think you founded the Energy Modeling Forum, if I have that correct. That's correct. I, I, I worked in the, the Department of Interior and then the Federal Energy Office, and then I um, left just before uh, uh, 19, the, the election in 1975 and uh, went to Stanford uh, University. And that's where we started up the Energy Modeling Forum. And I was, and then I left Stanford a couple of years later to uh, join the faculty at the Kennedy School. So you you were you've been at the Kennedy School as a professor uh, since 1978. Correct. Let's turn now to the Texas Energy Crisis. That's what we're here to talk about, and you've described it as unprecedented. But there have certainly been previous electricity grid problems and blackouts in Texas, California. I remember New York State, and I assume in many other parts of the world. What made this one so different, Bill? Well, um, I think it's uh, as you summarized in the beginning, and I can uh, certainly connect it to these other cases, but uh, it's just the scale and the scope. Um, and it's a very tragic situation, terrible. And uh, you know, when you're dealing with systems like this, you can uh, plan for some things. And then when you get outside the envelope, uh, uh, you're in trouble. So let, let's burrow in on that envelope, first on the supply side and then the demand side. I, I had said that natural gas, nuclear and wind were impaired. Um, how were they impaired? Well, a lot of this is uh, uh, has is yet to be determined. Uh, I'm uh, be, uh, there is a 
post-mortem analysis that is going on that will provide a lot of information. And um, the, the, the union of all of the things that people said, um, if you take all of those things and then you look at, could they all be true? The answer is no. <laughs> so mm -hmm. so there's, uh, we don't really understand this completely, but let's take the nuclear plants. The, the reports are that a, essentially a cooling water line that was come into the nuclear plant froze up. So, uh -huh. Uh, so its uh, systems automatically shut it down, uh, and then it was out for quite a while. Uh, the uh, it's clear that some of the gas pipelines froze up, the gas wells froze up. Um, it's clear that some of the uh, pumps uh, apparently lost electricity. It's not clear exactly why that happened. Um, uh, so then now the natural gas supply was uh, reduced. It's pretty clear that some transmission lines were knocked down by just ice and trees. Mm -hmm. uh, um, it's uh, pretty clear that a lot of the natural gas power plants, uh, some of them had other uh, you know, freezing uh, effects that caused them to stop running, even if they could get natural gas. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it's clear that the unconstrained demand went up by well above what they had anticipated. So, so you've mentioned natural gas and nuclear. What about wind power? Uh, wind power is a distraction in this conversation. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, my uh, colleague, uh, Jesse Jenkins, you remember, has yes. uh, I, I've heard him uh, coining the phrase that uh, wind and solar are reliably unreliable. So um, the available wind power was quite low uh, compared to its capacity, but that was expected. So mm -hmm. that was just normal. Um, so it, uh, they weren't counting on it and, um, uh, they didn't get very much. They got a little bit, um, less than they anticipated, but, and similar with solar. It's so, interesting that you say it was a distraction because it was actually a very loud, visible distraction, um, from some quarters in quotes in the press that I was seeing in the early days. Right. The, uh, the governor, um, in particular, um, pointed to uh, wind and others, uh, prominent figures did as well. Right. Um, and uh, pretty quickly, it became clear that was uh, just wasn't consistent with the, the scale of what was going on here. I see. So, um, you know, now this might be different in the future. Uh, that's a, that's a different question. But the uh, in this particular case, I mean, uh, it would have been better if we'd had more, but uh, it, it, it was, the, the real problem were all these uh, other uh, facilities. Now, in, rep in the reporting I saw in the press, and I, I guess I, for me, that's probably the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, the two newspapers I tend to read each day. Um, a lot was made out of the fact that uh, by some people quoted that Texas has essentially its own electricity grid of these various parts of the country. Um, was that uh, an important part of the problem? Well, that, uh, that'll be interesting to when we get more information, but I, I think um, the answer is, uh, de depending on what you define as the problem, uh, mm -hmm. is uh, probably no. Um, the, uh, uh, there are some connections between Texas and other places, um, and uh, they were not constrained. Uh, so if more power had been available north or, or west, it could have come into Texas from these places, they would have certainly taken it. Um, but similar problems were uh, at, occurring at the same time in um, 
in the Midwest and other parts, uh, Oklahoma and so on. Right. So that uh, they were also having rolling blackouts. It just wasn't as a huge a problem as we saw in Texas. So that's the supply side. Now I want to turn to the uh, demand side. Um, you said that the demand for electricity also actually increased at the same time that supply was decreasing. Why did the demand for electricity increase? Well, uh, what I've read uh, about this, I don't have the data at my fingertips, is that it's basically electric heating of one type mm -hmm. or another. And so uh, it's getting really cold and you've got a, uh, um, uh, do, uh, you know, a uh, reliance on electricity to uh, provide uh, heat either through resistance uh, heat or through, you know, uh, venting vis-a-vis uh, -vis the outside air. And that's um, something that uh, occurred. And in the forecast that were just short before this about what the peak loads were, um, mm -hmm. the, those forecasts tend to be underestimates by quite a bit. Now, uh, we're sitting, uh, both of us, up in New England, where electric heating doesn't make a lot of sense, but electric heating has low upfront costs and relatively high operating costs. So at low levels of utilization, such as what one expects in Texas or the South more broadly, it can make economic sense to use electric heating and new residential construction. Is that right? Right. And you can, or you can buy, you know, you can also buy a heat exchanger and that um, is sort of reverse air conditioner mm -hmm. that, uh, and, uh, and that'll also run. Although um, I was uh, talk, uh, talking to one of uh, the people at the university of uh, Texas and who has such uh, a device and it's set up so that they can, sh this utility can shut it off in the summertime if they get in trouble and he, has, he can't use the air conditioning. Mm -hmm. It turns out the same technology allows them to shut it off when it's cold <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and they did. <laughs> so it's, uh, he was uh, surprised to learn that he wasn't able to use that and uh, for periods of time you know, when they were trying to reduce load. Now, I, ironically, perhaps, I believe that the state of California and maybe other jurisdictions in the United States, um, there's a lot of interest and possibly movement toward uh, prohibiting new natural gas connections in new residential construction because of concerns about climate change. But wouldn't that, wouldn't that tend to increase more reliance on electric heating? Uh, certainly would. And uh, that's uh, something I, that they're going to have to pay attention to here. I, uh, 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 if, you know, if you, if you rely, if you set up your system so that you're relying, everything is on the same basic source. Uh, then when you lose that source, everything goes out. So that's a, that's a problem going forward. Right. Now, so we've laid out the causes on the supply side and the demand side in terms of the changes that took place. The, the press coverage has certainly also uh, emphasized in some cases that it's, a, it's the nature of the market itself, that it is not regulated in the same way that uh, electricity markets in other parts of the country are. What do you say to that? 
Well, th that's a, a good question that has, uh, there, there are multiple levels to, to which you could answer that. Uh, one of the uh, claims that has been very popular in certain uh, press articles is that Texas has a uh, free market in electricity and you can't have a free market in electricity because of problems like this. Um, and that's a mischaracterization of what has happened in Texas. So there's, there's no free market in uh, electricity anywhere. Uh, because of the physics. So it, all mm -hmm. of these systems are centrally coordinated. Um, uh, now, there are differences in the level of choice, but there are also reliability uh, conditions, operating reserves that are uh, imposed, transmission constraints that you have to respect. Uh, so it's a uh, complicated mix of engineering and economics. Uh, and you have more choice, perhaps, in Texas than you have elsewhere, but I think it's a mistake to characterize uh -huh. it as just having no regulation. So let, let me uh, ask you about it this way with an example. Um, so natural gas uh, lines in New England, I assume, are weatherized so that they don't freeze up. Natural gas lines in Texas, to some degree, were not weatherized and did free up. Is that difference due to differences in regulation between New England and Texas, or is it due to differences in terms of reasonable expectations of what temperatures are going to be in all but a 100-year event? Well, I, um, I don't know the, uh, the, the rules precisely for natural gas pipelines uh, in New England, uh, mm -hmm. and I, I know a little bit about the Texas because of things that have been said recently. I, I think it's mostly expectations. So mm -hmm. uh, they're they're not required uh, to do uh, very many things uh, like this. Now there are proposals that maybe they should be, uh, and there's more required by way of the electricity side than there is for the natural gas side, and that's going to be one of the subjects of uh, discussion and debate uh, in Texas. I mean, to some degree, when an event like this takes place. Um, then expectations change, which may or may not be appropriate. It's a, right, it's a biophysical question, but expectations will change. Yes, well, we'll have to see here. And again, it's going to depend on the partly on the postmortem and then yeah. uh, partly on uh, other things going forward. Um, but uh, I, I think if, if the answer of all of this when we get all finished is that uh, in, in uh, stepping back, when I said that about the nature of market outside there are uh, in other electricity markets, therefore, for example, capacity markets, they don't, mm -hmm. they don't have such a capacity market in Texas for uh, generation. Um, they have a different system, uh, but the capacity markets are relevant here because they're planning and the transmission expansion is planning for the shorthand as a one day or one event in 10 years mm -hmm. uh, kind of protection. And, right. and for, or things that are rarer than that, uh, we recognize we're not going to be able to protect against those. Um, and uh, if that turns out to be, if that were true in Texas, uh, then you would say if they had had this uh, alternative standard, would they have been able to get through last week uh, without uh, much trouble? And the answer is probably no. Uh, so uh, okay. the stories that are coming is that it was a one in a hundred year uh, kind mm -hmm. of event and which has not gotten enough attention and it lasted a lot longer <laughs> than mm -hmm. events <laughs> and other uh, systems. So right. uh, that 
had had a double effect, which were uh, very problematic. And the uh, there, there was a a very interesting interview with the uh, mayor of Oklahoma City, um, and the mayor of Oklahoma City, uh, which is not in Texas, obviously, <laughs> and but they were having their own problems at the same time. And uh, he said, "Let me just uh, uh, read you the." quotation because it's important here uh, in this case uh, we're probably we are probably not going to build a city that is ready to have sub-zero temperatures for a week every year mm-hmm. that would be too expensive mm-hmm. our taxpayers wouldn't want to do that right. um, he's not defending texas <laughs> because he wasn't in texas but he is explaining the underlying problem and it's always the the problem in term, doing a benefit cost analysis when one of the elements on either the benefit side or the cost side is small probability but high consequence event. Right. Whether it's climate change or it's this, that's it's always challenging. So let's turn to the consequences of the Texas energy crisis. We we've heard about some stories about incredibly high electricity prices that were faced by some of those who were actually fortunate enough not to lose their power. In particular, I think it was a provider that was called Gritty. Can you explain to us what happened there? Well. Uh... I, I don't know that Gritty is the only one, but certainly they're the most prominent. Um, uh, so in Texas, they have uh, full retail access, as it's called, which means that uh, final customers um, who are not part of municipalities, you know, municipal mm-hmm. utilities, uh, but the large fraction of customers can sign up with anybody they want to buy their electricity, and they have a contract that they arrange. And uh, and these contracts are uh, very, you know, there's a lot of variety, but essentially most of them are uh, kind of a fixed price with some small degree of variability, possibly. Uh, Gritty is an exception, and they offered a contract where for, I think it's $9.99 a month, you can buy power, and they will just take it from the wholesale market and deliver to you and charge you the wholesale price. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're floating with the wholesale price. So that is a completely unhedged purchasing right. arrangement. Right. And uh, whereas most of the customers are on different kind of contracts, which are hedged to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then there's a legal problem here or distinction, which is uh, Gritty actually is the representative of those customers when they're buying from ERCOT. So as a legal matter, Gritty buys the power from ERCOT and then turns around and resells it to their final customers. Uh, so this creates a financial obligation for Gritty to the uh, ERCOT. Uh, and uh, they, uh, I believe, uh, are not able to meet that financial obligation. The, the customers that are with Gritty who were curtailed obviously don't face high bills. Right. Um, the customers who were not curtailed and who continued to use the electricity, either because they wanted it and needed it or because they weren't paying attention, um, were uh, the ones who are going to get the high bills. So, so finally, let me ask you, you know, what's your advice? I know you're being very careful because I know that's the way you think and you're very careful about what you say without having full data and analysis, but you know, what's your advice for the path ahead subsequent to this latest uh, energy crisis in uh, Texas? 
Well, I mean, at a high level of abstraction, it's make sure you learn to write lessons here and mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and not get lost in um, something that isn't actually connected to the facts. So we want to find out what actually happened in detail. So, for example, as I said, if a uh, natural gas pipeline um, uh, was lost power for its pumps, it was using electricity to pump the gas and it lost power, it could have lost power for two reasons, at least. One is it could have been just that they were curtailed, um, right. which would have been a death spiral kind of problem. <laughs> so mm -hmm. not a good idea. And or it could have been that the transmission lines were knocked down, uh, in which case uh, that wasn't a decision that anybody made. It just happened. Uh, and things like that matter. So we ought to, we ought to find out uh, exactly what happened. And then when we go forward, um, we get we come back to this question of uh, renewables uh, mm -hmm. and and looking out into the future. And um, I'm if we had another half hour, I would be happy to explain in some detail why the Texas electricity market design is what we need going forward, um, much more so, uh, and it's been much more responsive to uh, changing uh, supply and demand conditions up until last week, and um, and you see evidence in the Western energy imbalance market that's expanding rapidly uh, because of the pressure coming from renewables. And you see the Southeast uh, electricity and energy market was proposed a couple of weeks ago, which is trying to accelerate the amount of trading and the amount of market operations. Um, all of these things are moving in the direction of the Texas energy market. So um, they're going that way because of the intermittency problems and challenges that come from renewables. And so I think we need to fix it uh, to some extent, but I don't think it's uh, it's uh, as broken as the, the market design. I don't think it's as broken as people have claimed. And in fact, if I understood what you were just saying, what you're saying is that with higher penetration of renewables in the nationwide electricity grid, which certainly most people would anticipate in coming years, that the Texas design uh, becomes more attractive, not less attractive. Is that that's, right? I think that's correct. Yes. Yeah. So let's end with that. Um, Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Rob. I want to thank again our guest, William Hogan, the Raymond Plank Professor of Global and Energy Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavins. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.